0: All right, well, we're, we're almost done with our study of the seven churches of Revelation. I can't believe it's almost done. But we, we've looked at five of the churches so far. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Ephesus was the church that lost its first love. Smyrna was the suffering church that received no rebuke from Jesus. Pergamum, the, the compromising church. Thyatira was the the tolerant church that tolerated sin and and false teaching last week we finished up Sardis the dead church it it looked promising from the outside but was was spiritually dead on the inside each church every each believer is encouraged to to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says and each person is encouraged to respond to what the Spirit of God says to the churches for some for some, it might be to repent and follow Jesus. For others, it's to keep the faith, to trust, to believe, to persevere, and even in times of, of suffering, no, no matter how things might appear. Everyone must decide for themselves who they will follow and what they will believe. Each one, each individual needs to decide that. Those who overcome will be blessed and they will receive and enjoy all the promises of God that Jesus gives. Today we we come to the sixth letter, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia is just one of two churches that was not rebuked by Jesus. The other one was Smyrna, as I mentioned before. Today we look at the sixth church, the church in Philadelphia. So first, a little bit about the city To help us understand a little bit about what was going on there. Our American city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is named after this city, after this city here. We all know that it means brotherly love. The biblical city was located about 28 miles southeast of the city of Sardis, about 105 miles east of Smyrna. It's kind of that, toward the, the bottom right corner there of the map. It was located in the valley on the Kogamis River, and now it's known as the, the modern Turkish city of Alasehir. It was the youngest of the seven cities, founded sometime around uh, 189 B.C. It was founded by King Attalus II of Pergamum, whose nickname was Philadelphus. Which means lover of a brother, because he had a very, very special relationship with his brother. They they love one another deeply. King Alice was noted for the admiration and love he had for his brother Eumenius, and he named the city in honor of him. Trade routes leading to Mycia, Lydia, and Phrygia merged in Philadelphia. So it was at the crossroads of some major roads. Rome's imperial postal route also went through here, and it earned it, it. That caused it to earn the name the Gateway to the East. Though it was situated on an easily defensible site on an 800-foot-high 800 800 hill, it was not founded as a military outpost, as, as some of the others were. But it did serve a very special purpose. It had a very special intention. The reason that it was was founded. Its founders intended it to be a center of Greek culture and Greek language. A missionary outpost for spreading Hellenism to Lydia and Prygea. That's, that's why they founded the city. They wanted Greek culture to be able to permeate the area. And so they set up this This city. And it succeeded in its mission so well that by A.D. 19, the Lydians had forgotten their own language and were all but Greeks. The city was, was located on the edge of a volcanic region that made its, its uh, fertile soil ideally suited for um, vineyards. So you can see there's the city, it's sitting by these mountains. It had a lot of vineyards around it. The volcanic uh, soil made it very fertile. It became a major industry of the area. But being near such seismically active area had its drawbacks. The city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 A.D. along with Sardis and other cities in the area. Most of the others recovered pretty quickly, from the disaster, but the aftershocks, the aftershocks in Philadelphia lasted for quite a while. And so although it wasn't destroyed as quickly with the initial earthquake, those long-term aftershocks just continued to devastate the city. As a result, the people had to flee the city repeatedly, and this nerve-wracking experience took its toll on the people there, in fact, this is what New Testament scholar Sir William Ramsay said about that. Many of the inhabitants remained outside the city living, living in huts and booths over the vale. And those foolhard, hardly enough, as a sober-minded thought, to remain in the city practiced various devices to support and strengthen the walls and houses against the recurring shocks. The memory of this disaster lived long. People lived amid ever-threatening danger and dread always of a new disaster. And the habit of going out to the open country had probably not disappeared when the seven letters were written. Caesar Tiberius helped Philadelphia recover from the earthquake, and out of gratitude, the city changed its name to Neo- Caesarea. Neo- Caesarea, which means New Caesar. They did that in honor of him for helping them. It also earned the nickname Little Athens because of its many temples and religious festivals. Worship of Dionysus was probably the main religion in the area. There really isn't much left of the city anymore. There's not really much left in the city of of the old city there. What, What is left is spread out in the city. There's a Remnants of a, of a city, old city wall here tucked behind a, a bunch of commercial buildings and maybe a pillar there or a piece of a cornice, but there's not much left. The theater, the theater which would have been glorious in its day, is, is stripped of all of its marble and is so overgrown with trees that it's, it's completely unrecognizable. It just, just looks like a hill with trees on it. I mean, there's just nothing really left of the, the city anymore. Really, the, the largest and the most visible are four large pillars. Four large pillars which, were the, which would have supported the domed roof of a, of a later era church that was there. That's really the most visible part that's left there. So, I, I mention these things about the city because they play into things that Jesus says in his letter. Little is known about the church apart from this passage. Based on what Jesus wrote to them, it appears to have been a small church. Like most of the other churches, it was probably founded as a a, a result of, of Paul's time in Ephesus. A few years after John wrote Revelation, the early church father Ignatius passed through Philadelphia on his way to Martyrdom in Rome. He later wrote the church a letter of encouragement and instruction. Some Christians from here were martyred with polycarp in, in Smyrna, if you remember when we studied Smyrna. The church stood firm and lasted for centuries here. It actually did. Even though there's not much left of the city now, the church itself, the Christian church, stood firm, lasted for centuries. Even after the area was overrun by, by Muslims, they, they held on. They finally succumbed in the mid 14th century. So, but their, their legacy has lived on. I mean, to the point that, you know, American City was named after this city. And so they have had a long standing influence. So that's, that's our little introduction to Philadelphia. So let's read what the Lord Jesus says to them. I mean, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Open your Bibles. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, it should be a pew Bible in front of you. It's on 1312 of the pew Bible, page 1312. So let's read what the Lord Jesus says to this church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice, notice how Jesus introduces himself to this church. It's different than how he's introduced himself to the other churches. Before he's drawn off of that that vision saw in Revelation 1. Remember, we looked at that several weeks ago, of Revelation chapter 1. And he's drawn out of that vision each time to introduce himself to the churches. But he doesn't do that here. Remember, this introduction is how Jesus wants them to see him, it speaks to who he is, what he does why he's writing them, and, and what they can expect from him. And here, he says he's the Holy One. He says he's the Holy One. And this is tantamount to declaring that he is God, which, of course, he is. In Isaiah 40.25, Yahweh calls himself the Holy One. Isaiah 40.25 Isaiah 40 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? says the Holy One. He says, I am the Holy One. Who will you compare to me? Who would you compare to me? He's holy. He's morally perfect, without flaw, without blemish. Jesus Christ is holy in his character, his words, his actions. His purposes. He is uniquely set apart from everything else and nothing can be compared to him. It's a a title of deity and contrast him with the claims of emperor worship that would have been familiar in this area. He is in genuine reality God. He is reminding them. He is the Holy One. And then he says he's the true one. He is the true one. The one behind all that really exists. This is who he is. He is the original. He is not a copy. He is the authentic God and not a manufactured one. There were hundreds of, these, of false gods and goddesses in those days. But only Jesus Christ could rightfully claim to be the true God. He's true. He's true. He cannot lie. He keeps his word. Believe him when he says it. He is fully trustworthy at all times and in every way. He is holy and he is true. He has the key of David. Keys and locks and doors are a sign of power and official authority. Jesus holds the key not to Philadelphia, but to the house of David. Remember, God told David that he would establish his kingdom and his son would reign on the throne forever, right? Jesus that son who takes the seats, the eternal throne, the one who opens and shuts doors. This statement is like Isaiah 22:20 20 through 22, when Elaim is given the key of the house of David. <laughs> and I would invite you to read that account later. Um, the key was taken away from someone else and was given to Elaim. He was given the authority to hold the key to the house of David. And it says, So he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. Jesus quotes that scripture here. Elakim had the authority to control who had access to David's house. Elakim had the authority to control who had access to David's house. Jesus controls access to the kingdom. There is no other way. He is the only way. It is Jesus who opens the door of salvation that no one else can open. It's also Jesus who can shut the door and not allow anyone who does not belong in. Jesus has the authority and the power to do all he says he will do. Now I want you to remember this. It's important. It's critical that you understand this. Jesus has the authority and the power to do all that he says he will do. It's important that we remember that because the rest of this letter to Philadelphia is about what Jesus has in store for believers. Not just believers in Philadelphia, but for all who remain faithful. The commendation, the statements of commendation flow out of the truth of Christ as the one who opens doors in verse 7 they were using the opportunities the Lord had given them as the door opener they were using the opportunities Christ says he knows their works so he put before them an open door that's what he says in the New Testament an open door speaks of an opportunity for ministry Acts 14:27. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. See, Christ is the Lord of the harvest, and he is the head of the church. And it is he who determines where and when his people will serve. In Acts 16, 6-10, Paul, Timothy, and Silas had, had plans to, to go to Bithynia. If you remember that account. But that door was closed. and Instead, a door was sent, was opened for them to go to Macedonia. We know the great work that they did in Macedonia. See, God gives those opportunities to serve him. He's the one that opens the doors. And he's the one that closes doors. He decides. He's the one that decides where we go, what we do. And he had set an open door before this church because he saw what they were doing. The question is, could they take advantage of it? Could they take advantage of it? Because there were, there were two obstacles for them to overcome. Jesus says he knows this church, and one of the things that he knows about them is they have but little power. That's what he says. But you have but little power. Now, that's not an insult or a rebuke. It's just an acknowledgment that they are small in size. They're just a small church. They aren't a big, flashy church like Sardis. Remember we talked about Sardis? Everyone wanted to be like Sardis. See, they, this church, they didn't have their own coffee shop. They didn't have their own music label. They didn't have a ministry of this or, or, a, or a, uh, a ministry of that, a school of this, a school of that. Not everyone everyone wanted to be like them. Not everyone wanted to walk around with a t-shirt that had their church name on it. This church was probably made up of believers who were not powerful or important or or well-connected. It was just a small country church with some ordinary people. Compared to the others, it didn't really appear very strong. Yet, Yet what was important was not their appearance of strength, but rather their faithfulness and their refusal to deny Jesus. It says they obediently kept Christ's word. Like Job in Job 23.12, they could say, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. And they had loyalty. They had not denied his name. Despite the pressures that they faced to do so, They they remained loyal no matter what it cost them. So we've seen with the other churches we've looked at, there's constant pressure to compromise the truth, to follow the world, or to follow ourselves, our desires. They had not. They had kept Christ's word, he says. They had not denied his name. That was what was important. The presence of the Spirit is promised to each church, but the power of the Spirit is given only to those churches who learn to keep His word and not deny His name. There are two things central in the ministry of every church. First, there must, there must be the Word. God plants the, His word at the heart of his church. It's the heart of his church it is. His Word. Everything everything should revolve around His Word. Not music, not programs, not the pastor, not the location. His Word. His Word is central to everything. We must preach it. We must teach it. We must study it. We must truly know it. And it's not just for the leadership either. Everybody, everybody in the church is to know God's word. Everybody is to know God's word. The Bible is the most amazing book the world has ever seen. It conveys insights into life that you will find in no other place. No college education, no, no degree can give you an understanding of life that this book will give you. Why? Why would you search for knowledge in any other place? This book has all of those answers. We must keep it. We must know it. We must walk in it. We must love it. We must soak ourselves in the Word. But beyond the Word is the Lord Himself. It's the Word which enables us to know the character of Jesus to have fellowship with Him, to not deny His character in our lives. We are to reflect all that His name stands for in our lives. We are to know Him. He's present with us at all times. We are to seek to conform our behavior to His life. That's what being a Christian means. Christ-like. Christ-like. God's Word, and Christ. That is what the church is about. Those two points. Those are the qualities it takes to enter into the open doors that the Lord gives to a church and to the individuals in it. To a church that is is responsive and is ready to be used, the Lord will use His power to bring comfort. Comfort, and we see that in verse 9. He says, Behold, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is the other obstacle that they faced. We had seen this, this phrase before, synagogue of Satan was also used in the letter to the persecuted church at Smyrna. Jews in that city who descended from Abraham and Jews by birth vehemently opposed Christians for their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. The implication is that they were doing the work of the devil. The primary thing that they have done is they have rejected Jesus. Claiming that Jesus is not the Messiah is something that the devil would want them to do. That's something that the devil would want them to do. Jesus is not the Messiah. So anyone who says that is doing the devil's work. They had been opposing and persecuting the Christians there. Now you have to remember how things were in the early church. In the early church, Christians were considered a sect of the Jewish church. They were just kind of an offshoot. And so they would have met in the synagogue. They had been members of the synagogue. They had converted to Christianity or the way. So they would have still been part of of the synagogue there until the unbelieving Jews turned them away. Eventually, eventually those unbelieving Jews would have turned on them. And then they would have been shut out of the church. The The doors would have been closed to them. They would have been locked out. Maybe, maybe when they would have shown up to church, they would have come to the door and knocked. The Jews would look out that peephole. Who is it? Oh, huh, it's you, Christian. Go away. We don't want you here. You don't belong here. Go away, Christian. Not only does Jesus say, I will open the door, and no one will close it. He then says, I will vindicate you. I will vindicate you. One day they will see that they were wrong. You were right. He will make them bow their feet. They will have to humbly acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is actually referring to a prophecy from the Old Testament here. Just like earlier with Eliezer, this is another from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah forty-five fourteen. Isaiah forty-five fourteen. Thus says the Lord: The wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides Him. Now, they weren't going to be worshiping the Jewish people themselves, but acknowledging that the God of Israel is the one true God. Those that hated and oppressed the people of God would come to realize how wrong they were, they would be humbled. This prophecy from Isaiah would have been well known for centuries. It would have been taught. They would have been very familiar with this. The expectation that Gentiles would come to bow at the Jews' feet. That's what they'd been waiting for. One day, they're all going to bow at our feet. But Jesus turns that on its head. He says, listen, those Jews that hated you, that kicked you out of the synagogue and oppressed you, They think that the nations are going to come to them. But they are going to come to you. They are going to realize how wrong they were. One day they will be humbled. They will realize the truth. Whether that's because some will come to know Christ themselves or or they don't. Romans 14.11, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The ones that hated you, the the synagogue of Satan, they're going to come to you and they're going to say, Surely God is in you. One day, one day there will be people who opposed you, or oppressed you, or hated you, or mocked you, or tried to undermine you. One day, those people are going to come to the realization that your God is the true God. That he is on your side, not theirs. You are the one that he loves. You were doing God's work. You will be vindicated. No matter how they may try to discourage or thwart you, Jesus will open the door And there's nothing that they can do to shut it. What comfort to know that. Amen? No matter what. No matter what the world, no matter what comes against us. One day, they will be humbled. They will realize the truth. And if God opens the door, they can't shut it. He says, he will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, it's a clear reference to what Jesus himself calls the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. A time of distress that will come on the the whole world, the the likes that have never been seen before or never will again. The worst time of distress and bloodshed bloodshed that the world has ever seen. Time of tribulation that John describes in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. This this is a key verse to those who subscribe to pre-tribulation rapture. The word that is used here is not really from, but out of. That's for another day. So Jesus here says he promises to protect believers out of that hour of trial that will come upon the whole world to test those that are here. I'm not going to get into all of that this morning, but here's the promise. Jesus will protect you. Jesus will protect you. Now this, this certainly doesn't mean that we won't suffer, because we know the New Testament is full of verses that tell us that we will suffer in this life. The protection that Jesus promises is, that, is not that we won't suffer, it's that, that suffering will never have the final word. No type of suffering will ever have the final word for a Christian, for those who are in Christ. And that should bring comfort too. And that fits so well with Jesus' words for those who hold fast and conquer. That's the crown from verses 11 through 12. Verses 11 through 12. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. My own new name. He says, hold fast to what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. We've talked about the crown before. What a crown is. A crown is for those who finish a race. For those that finish a race. So keep running. He says, keep running so that no one seizes your crown. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Now think about the idea of a pillar, what it would have meant to Christians in Philadelphia. Remember, now these Christians probably didn't feel strong. They didn't feel like pillars. They probably didn't have a lot of influence or or a lot of resources. They didn't have a lot of money. They probably felt exhausted and weak. They've been rejected. They've been rejected out of the synagogue. Probably felt small. Maybe felt insignificant. Insignificant. But here's what Jesus promises. He will make you a pillar. That's what he says. I will make him a pillar. If you feel insignificant, he will make you sturdy. Even if you feel weak, he will strengthen you. That would have had special comfort to these Christians that were always living in fear of an earthquake that would chase them out. Remember, I I mentioned that earlier. They're always in fear of these aftershocks, always ready to run out. Sometimes the pillars would be all that was left standing after an earthquake. You will never have to go out of it, he says. You don't have to fear. This temple is forever stable and secure. No matter how difficult it might get, you will survive, you will stand. You don't have to go out and live in a hut in the valley. And honor. Ancient cities often honored great leaders or or important people by erecting pillars with their names inscribed on them. God's pillars are not made of stone. They're faithful people who bear his name for his glory. Eternal security and honor are yours. You overcome to the end. He says, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Change of names would have been meaningful to the Philadelphians because the city had changed its names twice in its history. It renamed itself Neocasera when Tiberius helped it, I mentioned that earlier. Later on, in honor of Vespasian, one of the Flavian emperors, it changed his name to Flavia. Later, it, it returned its name to Philadelphia. But they would have been familiar, they would have understood the idea of changing a name, what a different name meant. Names are important. Names are important for us too, right? They tell us who we are and, and where we're from and, and who we know and things like that. You know, It'd be like me. Hello, I'm Kurt. I'm from Martin. I'm a friend of, of Terry Smith. That would, have, that would have informed you a lot about me just with those, those things, right? Names are important. Jesus says that he's going to give them three new names. He said he's going to give them God's name. He's going to write God's name on them. That's going to show ownership I belong to the king I belong to the king then he's going to write God's city's name that's citizenship the world is not my home the world is not my home my citizenship is forever in heaven and then it says Jesus's new name Jesus's new name what does that mean what is it Everyone would like to know, what is Jesus' new name? Revelation 19.12 says when he comes back, he will have a name that no one knows but him. See, Jesus, Jesus was his redemptive name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That was his redemptive name. But when the work of redemption is finished, when we're all home in glory with God... God's work of saving and redeeming us is over, Jesus will be given a new work to do. He will be given a new work to do. A new role and a new name will be given to Him. And He will share it with us. He will share and write that new name on us. We will know Christ fully. We will know Him fully. The eternal relationship Will be fully realized. As I as I close this morning, I, I want to give you an illustration, an illustration from one of my favorite movies of all time. And no, this doesn't mean that I'm going to start using movies as a as a sermon topic, but it really fit in well with today. One of my favorite movies of all time is Toy, Toy Story. One of the key characters is Buzz Lightyear. And for most of the movie, he believes that he is a space ranger. But eventually, he realizes that he's not. He is not a space ranger. He's a toy. He is not going to infinity and beyond. And Buzz is greatly discouraged. And he's even depressed by that toward the end of the movie Buzz and another toy Woody are kidnapped by by Sid the evil next-door neighbor remember Sid Woody is trying to convince Buzz to, to fight to, to help them escape Buzz doesn't seem to care he's totally dejected he's not a space Ranger he's not a space Ranger why it doesn't even matter I'm not a space Ranger But then Woody steps in with this impassioned speech. He says, yeah, yeah, Buzz, you're not a space ranger. But you are a toy. And your owner, Andy, loves you. And as Buzz Lightyear is contemplating those words, he looks down to the bottom of his foot. He sees Andy's name written. On it. And he had written his name on all his toys, including Buzz. A transformation takes place in Buzz's mind. He realizes, although he's not what he thought he was, although he feels insignificant in the world, although he has no power. He realized that he is loved by his owner. He's loved by his owner. He had placed his name on him. He realizes that and he gets to work. Well, that's you. Friends, the same is true for you. You belong to Jesus. You are his and you bring him joy. He loves you and he wrote his name you. You may feel insignificant, but Jesus says you belong to him. You're the one that he loves. When you feel like you don't measure up, when you feel rejected, when you feel alone, remind yourselves, you are the one that he loves. Jesus loves you, and he demonstrated his love for you on that cross. He died a brutal death. A death that he did not deserve. But he did it on your behalf. If you're a believer in Christ, that you've genuinely trusted in Christ alone, then the atonement of Christ on the cross applies to you. Your sins have been forgiven. The door is open to you. No one can shut that. I love this letter to the church of Philadelphia partly because it, it tells us gives us an idea of what God wants from us what he wants in a church but it also gives hope it gives hope to those who may not feel that they measure up here's the thing the size and the strength of a church or believer doesn't matter it is your witness it is your witness it is your faithfulness it is your heart for the gospel and your love for Jesus that's what truly matters that's what truly matters see you don't have to be this you don't have to be that you don't have to be a megachurch to make a difference to be impactful you don't have to have your own record label coffee shop school no you can be this you can be that small church like faith chapel and if God opens the doors there's nothing that could stop us There is nothing that can stop us if God opens the door. If we are faithful to God's word in the name of Jesus, he will open doors of ministry for us. He will open doors of ministry to us. Things for us to do. And it won't matter who gets in the way, who tries to discourage us or undermine us or talk bad about us. If we obediently keep God's word, we stay loyal to his name, we patiently endure, they cannot close a door that he has opened. We must see the opportunities, not the obstacles. I can't wait to see what God is going to do through us. Amen? We don't have to be a megachurch. We don't have to have a lot of money. We don't have to have a lot of programs to make an impact. This little church, but you have little power. They were faithful to Him, to God's Word, to Christ's name. And He says, because of that, I will... Set an open door before you. No one can close that door. Church, we need to remain faithful to his word, to his truth, to his name. He will set open doors before us. No one can close. I cannot wait to see what he's going to do because he opened that door. Praise God. He is going to use us for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbled, grateful, thankful for your word and the example that you have for us. Lord Jesus, we identify with the church of Philadelphia. Sometimes we can feel weak, and small, and insignificant. But that's not what matters to you. It's not our power. It's yours. You just ask us to be faithful to the truth and to your name. And if, and if we do that, you will protect us. You will bring us comfort. One day we will be vindicated. You will set open doors before us, ministry opportunities for us to walk into. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would always find us faithful to that, that you would use us in a mighty way for your kingdom. Give you thanks in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.